0: You may be seated. (laughs) Good morning. How are you all doing? All right. We are in Matthew 7 today, and we are sadly approaching the end of our series of working through the Sermon on the Mount. Today is by far. One of the uh, most well-known pieces of scripture probably in all the Bible. It used to be John three sixteen, 16. Uh, but I would argue that do not judge in 2020 is probably the go-to. It's probably the top that has taken over. You say to someone, hey, you probably shouldn't do that. And what's the killer? They go, yeah, well, judge not, lest ye be judged, right? They pull out the KGV, the Old English, and you're like, oh, they got me. They got me. Uh, The passage overall has has some of the most quoted verses. You have the sawdust and the plank and the eye. You have the cast not pearls before swine. All these verses uh, tend to be butchered most of the time. They're often divorced from the context as well. So it's what a a joy it's been for us to be able to go through the last two chapters over a period of months and see all of this with with the full breadth of the Sermon on the Mount all together. So with this in mind, here's my outline for note-takers today. The first point is that we should not judge because God alone is the judge. The second point is that we should not judge because we are blinded by our own sin. And the third point is that we should judge not because we should use right judgment instead. Do not judge or you too will be judged. Follow along with me Matthew 7 verses 1 through 6. what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. There was a man many years ago who was sailing to Europe on one of the old great transatlantic uh, ocean liners. And when he got on board, he went to his cabin, he went to check it out, and he realized there was another passenger there sharing the, the bunk next to him. So he saw the accommodations, he, he went to the main desk, and he, and he inquired if he could leave his gold watch, leave his other valuables there, leave it in the ship safe. And he explained that ordinarily he never did this sort of thing. I never do this sort of thing, but, but I've seen the man that I'm sharing the cabin with, and, uh, you know, I just, I'd like to leave my stuff here. Well, the officer of the ship looked at him and he said, this shouldn't be a problem at all. I'm happy to, to take the responsibility for your valuables. It's all right, sir, he said. I'll be very glad to take care of them for you. In fact, the other man just came up here and did the same thing with his valuables as well. You see, Jesus all throughout the Sermon on the Mount has been utilizing this sermon as a sort of scalpel which has been uh, cutting and probing our hearts and, and our bodies and it has been searching out the sin and it's forced us as a mirror to look at the sin that so easily entangles us. And we have to face ourselves, the true selves. Just like the man on the boat had to face his own prejudice, his own judgmental spirit. We've taken quite a journey of self-reflection, and I'll be honest when I when I tell you it's hurt. It's hurt me over the past few months to look at the words of Christ and to look at my own heart. But what a joy it's been to see him through it all and to look at my blessed savior and to say there but for the grace of god go all of us well with the first two chapters of matthew the sermon on the mount in our minds i I want us to to focus on this one now now we've come here we've we've come to do not judge we're nearing the end of the sermon and jesus is telling us that based on everything else i've said all the first two chapters all the rest of the sermon i'm telling you do not judge others Do not judge them with an improper spirit, which brings us to our first point. We should not judge because God alone is the judge. I think the main reason people love this passage so much, especially non-Christians, Christians, Christians, I mean, it's an equal opportunity passage. Everybody loves it. But it's because we, we hate to feel convicted. I mean, we all of us hate to feel convicted. We hate to feel judged of our sin. We do not like even constructive criticism, right? Criticism is bad, period. And so for Christians who may be ignorant of the context, the first two chapters or even the verses surrounding this one, this can be an instant shutdown, an instant checkmate, right? You come to someone and they say, aren't you a Christian? Don't you know the Bible says judge not? And you're done, right? That's the end of the conversation. Aren't you a Christian? Checkmate. And instead of saying, well, yes, it does say that, but let me... Can, I, you know, can we talk about this a little bit? Can we explain it a little bit? No, no, no. They feel defeated. And I've had well-meaning believers come to me and they say this, this same thing. It's a sort of a shallow interpretation. They say, who am I to judge? He, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And they're partly right. Because if you came to me and you say, Heath, what, is it, what does it mean when Jesus says, judge not? You know what I'm going to say? I'm going to say it means you should judge not. But where they get it wrong, of course, is that in verse 6, the very final verse here of our passage, Jesus is clearly telling us to make some sort of judgment, some sort of value judgment, some sort of of discernment when we interact with other people. And all throughout the New Testament, we see the same thing. We see Jesus and the apostles, they all make value judgments about a people, a place, a thing. They're making these discerning actions based on what they're seeing. So clearly, a purely mechanical reading of this is incorrect. What Jesus is not saying then is that we shouldn't have discernment or make moral assessments based on people's behavior, right? The Bible says clearly you will know them by their fruit. You'll know them by their actions. And we should call people to repentance. We should condemn sin when we see it. So this is one side of the extreme coin, right? The other side now is going to be the opposite, it's to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And Christians say, well, since we, that can't be what that means. Do not judge, no, no, no. We're allowed to judge, and not only are we allowed to, we should judge all the time, right? We should judge them by their fruit. We should test the spirits. And now we have a free pass to be not only judge, but we're judge and jury. We can look at people and we can even say, there are some people who go, well, that person, surely that person is going to hell. Surely, I know their heart. That person is going to hell, straight to hell. One way, ticket. do not pass, go. Well, this is where the Pharisees had it wrong as well. They fell on this side of the extreme. Listen to John, uh, what Jesus says in John 7. He says, stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly or judge rightly. You see, the Pharisees were obsessed with the appearance. They were obsessed with keeping up appearances. One of the funniest places we see this is that in the Old Testament Saul King Saul is chosen not based on anything except for how tall he is. I mean they look at him and the Bible makes mention of just how tall he is multiple times and they're like, well he's tall, that's he's our guy. That's our king. And so when when Samuel comes to choose David in 1 Samuel 16:7, he sees David's tall brother and he goes, that's the dude he's tall that has to be our guy now listen to what god says he says do not consider his appearance or his height for i have rejected him the lord does not look on the things people look at people look at the outward appearance but the lord looks at the heart so there is indeed a correct and righteous way to judge but we don't have spiritual x-ray vision like god does We can only see people's actions. We can only see their outward appearances. We can only judge the book by the cover. Thus, our judgments are faulty, and they're often based on sinful desires or sinful, uh, you know, hate wells up in our hearts. So if I had to sum up again what Jesus is saying, it's, it's this, that you aren't God, and I'm not God, and our judgment is warped and tainted by our sin, just like everything else. Therefore, do not judge people harshly or critically or finally condemn them. Stop condemning and judging people in your heart or else, Jesus says, the same measure will be used against you. Again, if you, if you want to go back here, when I talked about forgiveness, I talked about the unforgiving servant. And you remember the, the parable where the unforgiving servant has this tremendous amount of debt. And the king says, you can never repay this. You're good, here's grace, here's mercy, now go. You're free. And, and the unforgiving servant goes off now and he finds his people that owe him money, these, these paltry little sums, and he demands them to pay it back. But what does the master do? He calls him back in and he says, you didn't use my measure of grace. You didn't use my measure of mercy, so I'm going to now judge you based on your measure of grace and mercy, which was non-existent. And so the king sends him to prison and says, you're going to pay back every single cent. And so what Jesus is arguing against here is a censorious spirit, which just means a hyper-critical spirit, an attitude that is always judging, always looks for the wrong in people, lives a life with a half-empty glass, right? There's never anything positive, always pessimistic. And the best way I know to describe this sort of person is to head over to the love chapter, right? 1 Corinthians Thirteen. So if you have your Bibles, head over there with me. 1 Corinthians 13, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. And I'm going to stop along the way. Paul says this. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. We can stop right there. Who's Paul talking about? Paul could be describing himself prior to his conversion. He could be describing the scribes and the Pharisees who were often without love. He could be describing many of us here in this room today. Judgment without love is an error. It's a grievous error. Error. It's an error that Jesus wants us to be wary about. Continuing on in verse 4. Love is what? Patient. The hypercritical person is always impatient. Their time is, is more important than yours. There is no time for understanding. There is no time for you to explain yourself. They are impatient. They do not have patience for you or your errors. Love is kind. The hypercritical person is always unkind. They are unkind in their rebuke. They are unkind in their assessments. They do not correct you in love. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. It is not proud. The censorious spirit rebukes because it's often jealous. It's often boastful and proud because it seeks the praise of others. It doesn't want judgment. It wants to judge others to puff itself up. It doesn't want conviction. It wants adoration. And this is why knowing myself, I can receive a hundred likes on a Facebook post or insert social media here. You can receive a hundred thumbs up, whatever. And the second anyone angry reacts, my day is ruined. That's it, you know, I wanna message them and be like, why did you, you know, and my grandmother accidentally clicked the angry reaction, you know, it's not even, but that little bit, that little, what, you know, is that person judging me? What did they mean by that? So petty. Verse 5, it does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. You see, the hypercritical person delights in dishonoring others. They, they say things like, you know, I hate to say I told you so. Does anyone hate to say I told you so? I love to say I told you so, right? It's like the best fit. I love to say I told you so because I love to be right. They're always self-seeking. They're all, their judgment is meant to lower you, bring themselves up. Again, love is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. The hypercritical person has your name on a filing cabinet. And they have all your wrongs you've ever committed years ago that they will bring out and put put it on you. The smallest mistake will set them off because they're waiting for you to make a mistake. No slip will go unnoticed for that type of person. Verse 6, love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. Well, the hypercritical person loves the dark. Hates the light, hates the truth, doesn't want to hear the truth because the truth would expose them to the light, which they hate. You see, they judge you based on a warped reality, devoid of truth. And then when you come in with the scripture or you come in with the truth, they shut you down and they'll they'll try to correct you with your own stuff, right? Doesn't the Bible say, do not judge? Right, that's what Satan does. He, He uses scripture to try to throw you off, right? And that's what Jesus does back to him in the temptation. You'll remember, quotes it back to him, destroys him. Verse 7, love always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. The hypercritical person protects themselves, they trust no one, they hope in no one, and they give up on friends and family at the drop of a hat. Do you know anyone that resembles any of these things? I looked in the mirror today and I saw a guy that looked a lot like this a lot of the time. Because I'm often highly critical. In fact, I was talking to my wife Ashley this week as I was preparing for this and I said, you know, I probably have made 100 unloving judgments, snap judgments on people in the first few days of this week (laughs) alone. Right? I mean, I love it. I sit in my judge's bench, I put on my powdered white wig and I turn on the news. And I say, who's going to be guilty today? Guilty, guilty, guilty. I'm pointing people out. That guy's guilty. Oh, if I had been in that situation, oh, my word, I can't believe those sinners. I confess that I often find myself relating with the unforgiving servant in the parable. And I relate with the Pharisee who sits there and says, Lord, Lord, I thank you. I'm not like that guy. I thank you. I'm not like those people. And so now again, I come to the scalpel. I come to the passage like this, and I read these words, do not judge from the only person on earth who ever had the right to judge anyone. (laughs) Jesus could have been the most hypercritical person that ever lived. Peter, will you grow a backbone? Martha, will you just quit your complaining? Thomas, how, how dare you doubt me? Jesus had the moral high ground in every single situation. And yet we're told he eats and he dines with tax collectors and they love him. Sinners loved to be around Jesus. He came not to judge the world, but to save the world, he says. So we step back. We need to step back. And we need to just take a moment to let out a cry of praise. Because he could rightly condemn us. But in love, he comes with healing in his wings, and he comes with compassion and mercy and grace, and he extends his nail-scarred hands to the vilest of people. And he says, come. Come. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Would you come? So if we want to follow in Jesus' footsteps, we need to heed this advice. We don't need to try to quantify it and and put it away and say, well, Jesus really meant this. He means do not judge. We're not God. We have no right to utterly condemn sinners, of which we are some of the worst, saved by grace. Thank God. Second point, we should judge not because why, leading into this, we're blinded by our own sin. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, Jesus says, and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Again, as I was describing that hypocritical person, you probably, you probably had someone in mind. <laughs> You probably put somebody, somebody else popped in your head. And that's sort of what Jesus is getting at here. For the Pharisees and their faux righteousness, right? We've, we've been looking at the Pharisees contrasting the righteousness of the Pharisees and the true righteousness that Christ requires of his people. And the Pharisees always put someone else in their head. It was always the Samaritans or the Romans or the sinners or the tax collectors. And whenever they mentioned these people, whenever they mentioned the sinners... They never included themselves in that bunch. You see, but Jesus' words here are like, are like turning on your iPhone camera, right? You, you wanna take a picture of something, you go, oh, I can't wait to take a picture, right? Yeah. And, and it, it's actually turned around, and you see yourself going, you know, this whore, and you ah, you scream a little bit, because you've just seen your, the ugliest possible, you know, ah, you're, the double chance. That's what it's like looking at scripture. It's hard to be exposed. It's hard to look at the text and go, Is Jesus talking about me? (laughs) Could he be be saying that I need to listen to this? Because I was going to share this with Uncle Bob. He needs to listen to this. A couple months ago, I talked about self-discipline and the Christian life of balance. And and daily, we need to be practicing self-examination. In the words of John Owen, he says, We should be killing sin or it will be killing us. And so we need to remove the plank. We need to see ourselves in the camera for who we truly are. And what does this look like practically? Well, the first thing it looks like is it looks like being honest with ourselves. If you know me, uh, you may know that I love politics and I equally hate politics. I, I love it and I hate it. It's equal parts passion of mine. And so I, I'm constantly following everything and, and this year has been masks and riots and it's been super I mean it's just awful what it's been like. And it's been very easy for me to pick out the winners and losers in my mind and I'm sure all of you can relate to this. And while I've been quick to condemn every other state and every other governor and every other politician for every other problem underneath our noses in Panama City we've had problems of our own with our own governors and our own situations and our own politics. And so in order to remove the plank, I need to direct my focus here. I need to, I need to work on my own heart first, and then I need to push outwards. We should, we should be more concerned with Panama City than we are Washington, D.C. It would probably help all of us sleep better anyways. <laughs> so let's, let's love our communities. Let's pray for our community. Let's, let's go out and be the hands and feet of Jesus here before we judge other places. Secondly, who have you wronged, and who do you need to ask forgiveness from? As I mentioned earlier, a hundred snap judgments. And, and I should probably go to some people and apologize for things I've said. I mean, I, I, I should. Not only publicly, but things I've thought inwardly. My own prejudices, my own, my own immediate thoughts, where I take that person and I put them in a box, and I assume the worst immediately. This means that I'm gonna have to forgo my pride. And it means that's gonna hurt. Who have I cursed inwardly, right? Jesus says, if you've hated a brother or sister in your heart, you've you've done what? Committed murder. Have Have you thought about the crime scene that is in your head most days? Who you've killed and murdered in your own mind? Lord, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me of that. We should repent. We should cast our pride at the foot of the cross. Jesus, take that away. Take the pride away so that I love my neighbor as myself. Expose it to the light. Finally, after we have removed the plank only by God's grace, then we should love one another enough to correct each other in love. I have a handful of people, as I'm sure you do as well, where they live glorious, godly lives, and they have just impeccable just character, And if they came to me and they said, Heath, we've noticed this or we've noticed that, I would weep with them. And I would rejoice. I'd say, Lord, thank you so much for sending these men, these women into my life. Thank you for, for calling me out on my sin. Now, on the other side of that, I have, so, I have a bunch of hypocritical friends who do not lead that sort of life, who are one way. And if they came to me, I'd say, I'm sorry. <laughs> I know what you did last summer, right? I I know what you're up to. You're going to come talk to me? And I would not receive it in love, even if it was the truth. I wouldn't receive the truth in love. I'd receive it with anger and harsh words. And I would trample on the truth that they brought to me. Again, this is a serious thing. It's a serious thing thing to judge people without first judging ourselves. It's no wonder that many of our conversations and many of our discussions turn instantly sour because we instantly assume the worst before we even get into the conversation. We already have that person in a box because we already have their file folder. And so we know exactly where they're going to go. We know exactly what they're going to say, and that's all there is to it. Well, thanks be to God. (laughs) Jesus Christ, our Lord, he, if anybody could keep a file, if anybody should keep a record of wrongs, who else, who, should, who else could do that? And what does the Bible say? Lord, if you kept a record of my wrongs, who could stand? Who could stand? And yet Jesus Christ comes to remove our spiritual blindness He's come to set us free. And he's cast our sin as far as the east is from the west. He's forgotten it. It's gone. There is no file folder of Heath's sins. It's all been nailed to the cross. So now I can come to you and we can actually sharpen each other a bit. We can have some iron on iron sharpening and we can work through things in love and we can pray for mercy and forgiveness. And we can come to each other and say, listen, I was wrong. Would you forgive me? And praise God that he corrects us and that he rebukes us as his children. The Bible says, if you are being corrected, if you're being rebuked, congratulations, you are a son or a daughter of God. Congratulations. Because God only corrects those he loves. So, Lord, give us clean hands. Give us hands that are quick to heal rather than to shed blood. We want not Jonah feet, right? We don't want these Jonah feet. We want glorious gospel feet. We want ears that are open, ready to receive a good report. Not always ready for the bad one. What about for our kids? We ask for hearts that beat with zeal, that ache for our neighbors. Tongues that are tamed, eyes that see. We want to look like Jesus. That's what we want. And so since Christ has taken the judgment of sin in our place, now we are free to judge by the same measure. We can go out and forgive people radically finally our final point today is that we should judge not but we should use right judgment verse 6 do not give dogs what is sacred do not throw your pearls to pigs if you do this they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces now the first thing that strikes me and probably you as well is that this this seems a little harsh from jesus is is he calling people dogs and pigs here I think I wrestled with this, and there's lots of interpretations, but here's what I came up with. I think it's more appropriate to say that he's telling us something seriously fundamental about human sinful nature. And that all of us have dog-like and pig-like natures that sometimes come out. And, and when it, they often come out when we're in front of holy or scriptural things, right, spiritual things. What do I mean by this? Well, imagine your grandmother has made you a beautiful little, knitted you a little blanket, and you love this blanket, you've grown up with this blanket, and it's just precious to you. Now you get a new puppy, and you go, this puppy's precious to me. I'm gonna give this dog this blanket for my grandmother. Now your puppy says, thank you so much. I understand the worth and the value of this. I'm gonna wash it once a week. I'm gonna take care of it. Is that what dogs do? He's going to use the restroom on grandma's blanket. He's going to tear up grandma's blanket. And so if you give a holy thing, if you give a precious thing to a dog, how are they going to treat it? Okay, what about pigs? When a farmer comes to them with a bucket of slop, what are the pigs waiting for? Waiting for food. They're hungry. Their bellies are full. They're they're waiting for something. And now the farmer takes the bucket instead of slop comes out pearls. And the pigs are, you know, the pigs can't. And now they turn on the farmer and they attack him looking for food. And finally, what is the pearl? Well, Jesus uses this same analogy, if you will, elsewhere. In Matthew 13, he gives us the parable of the pearl of great price. Of the man who finds a treasure in a field. So he sells everything and he buys the field just to be with that treasure and the treasure is the precious, inestimable value of the kingdom of God. It's the gospel. It's like finding Jesus Christ himself. So putting that all together now. All of us have pig and dog-like tendencies, so we need to learn to read the room when we're evangelizing, when we're talking with others. We need to use discernment. Instead of judging people, we should evaluate them and their needs accordingly. Well, these youth kids... Will they understand, will they pay attention if their t- stomachs are grumbling? I've learned that that's often not the case. They're fidgeting, they can't focus. So sometimes we feed them beforehand. Will these people on the street, I'm handing out tracts, I'm evangelizing on the street. Will these people understand a systematic theology if they've never had any sort of basic Christian understanding? Or should I give them milk first? I should read the room, I should understand, I should have discernment, and I should should know that if I'm dealing with believers or non-believers, this is the way I should treat them. And we should hold these sacred things precious to ourselves. Can you imagine what a message it would be, what a testimony it would be to the world if all of us as Christians just realized what we had in this? What value is in the scriptures for us? We don't want things to be profaned. We don't want the name of God to be profaned. Another application is simply this: to, to know when to get out of a conversation. We've all been in conversations where uh, nothing's going anywhere. You're just arguing back and forth. Their mind's not going to get changed. your mind's not going to get changed." And so you say, "No, no, no, I'm the judge. I am going to put so much truth out there until I condemn this person." Or you say, "No, no, 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 I'm the judge. And I'm going to reason this person into heaven. When in reality, the things of God are hostile to the mind of the unbeliever. And only the Spirit gives life. You and I don't give life. We can, we can evangelize, we can argue, we, we should stand up for truth, but we are not the judge. So sometimes we need to know when to step away. Paul, three times in Acts, left the village, wrung out his sandals, and said, I'm gone. I'm gone, I'm out. Not without praying for them, not without loving them. Only the Spirit gives life. And so we should season our speech with salt and light. Paul, again, in Romans 12, 18, he says this, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with just your friends, just your family. Live at peace with everyone, Paul says. As far as possible, depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Imagine, again, the cultural shift If we live such godly lives, such lives of value, such beautiful lives that that non-believers had nothing to say against us, and that we loved one another, it just would be remarkable what would happen in the world. We need to feed on Christ ourselves. So this verse isn't a weapon to be used. The Bible, it's not a weapon to be used to call people pigs and dogs. Yeah, I should have known better. I shouldn't toss my pearls before swine. Instead, it's a mirror for us to examine our own selves. Again, think of how Christ was thrown to us. The most precious thing that God could have given us was his son. And what did we do with him? Like dogs. Like pigs. We tore them apart. We ripped them up. We trampled them underfoot. And because he was torn and beaten in my place and in your place, pigs have turned into people. I'll believe it when pigs turn into people. It's beautiful. Free from condemnation, no eternal judgment, free in Christ, dearly loved by God. J.I. Packer says this. He says, to be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is far greater. Remarkable. So we need to be quick to listen, slow to speak, quick to accept an apology, slow to demand one, quick to receive good reports, slow to receive bad ones. We need to be quick to self-examination, slow to self-exaltation, mercy, grace. And we don't cut people off. We don't, we don't burn bridges unless we do so with tears and weeping through hours and weeks and months and years of prayer. And even then, we look out to the field. And we look for them to run to us. For Christ to bring them to life again. I'm going to end it with a a popular illustration. Some of you may know this. But there was a story of some early pioneers. I want you to picture this in your head. The early pioneers. And they're making their way across the central states. To distant, far places. And they're in a wagon. And they're going homesteading. It's just remarkable. They're, They're traveling by oxen. And the progress is slow. You can imagine the picture... One day they're horrified as they note smoke in the west. And they see that stretching for miles across the prairie, there is a fire burning fiercely through the dry grass. It's coming towards them. They had crossed a river before, but it was about a day away, and these flames are going to reach them. They're going to be upon them soon. They're going to be utterly consumed. One man only seems to have the understanding, the discernment to know what to do, and he says... We have to burn the grass behind us. We have to burn the grass behind us. Then when a space is burned, the whole company will move back to it. Well, as the flames roared on, they were coming faster from the west, and a little girl cried out in terror, Are you sure we shall all not be burned up? And the leader replied, My child, the flames cannot reach us here, for we are standing where the fire has already been. What a wonderful picture of the believer that is now in Christ Jesus. The believer who has passed from judgment, has passed from death to life. The fires of God's judgment burned themselves out upon Jesus. And all now who are in him are hidden with him forever. And we're standing where the fire has already been. Do you know that? Do you know that Christ do you stand with him I pray that you look to the west if you do not because smoke is coming and the fire will consume you and God will judge you all of us will have to stand before the judge of eternity and we will have to give an account for everything we've said or done and only those who stand with Christ will stand firm in that day therefore Therefore, in light of Christ's mercy, do not judge. Daily, cleanse your eyes. And finally, hold precious these dear things that God has given us. Use discernment in your daily lives. Do not give the enemies of our Lord any opportunity to slander his name. Hold his name precious. I pray that all of us could extend grace this week, this month, the rest of 2020. We're going to need it. And may Christ extend his grace to us to get us through to another day. He's going to do it. Let's pray. Jesus, we are thankful for your grace. We're thankful for your mercy. We're thankful that you love us. And that yet while we were far off, while we were your enemies, you died for us. And the Father ran to us, and your Holy Spirit enlivened our hearts to receive your good things. And now, Lord, I I confess that I'm so judgmental. I confess that I do it without even thinking. And so I need my mind to be transformed. I need my mind to be renewed by the gospel of grace so that I would see my neighbors, so that I would see other people, not as some sort of platform or opportunity that I can make them lower than myself, stand on them, but that I would lift others up, that I would extend mercy and grace to all people, and that I would love them as you love us. Lord, be with us this week, we pray. All this in your name, amen. Our final hymn today is a wonderful one, His Mercy is more. Would you stand and join us as we sing together?